Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie Weissman, the editor in chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Emily Esner. She's the chief marketing officer of Saks. Saks has spun off from Saks Fifth Avenue a couple. Of, it's been about two years now, and so I want to talk all about how that's gone. I also want to talk about the state of luxury e-commerce, which I'm sure is something that Emily thinks about all the time. But Emily, how are you doing? Thanks for joining me. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here, Kale. Yeah. So first, um, you're you're one of those rare guests I have on the podcast who has been at a company for a really long time. Um, and so I, could you? I was going through your LinkedIn, and it seems like I would love you to just go through your background, how you ended up where you are. But you've been at Saks or iterations of it for for quite a bit now, right? I have, I have. Um, and one of those things where I think you you look back and you go, wow, that, that has been a little while. <laughs> um, I've been I've been at the company, are we at 11 years, 11 and a half years, something like that, um, which again is wild to imagine. Um, you know, I, um, I went to a small liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts. I um, majored in international relations in Spanish. I'd always wanted to be a lawyer um, up until my sophomore year of college. I uh, took a constitutional law class um, and looked around and everybody loved it and I hated it. <laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, this is this is a sign. Um, and at least I paid attention to the sign. And then I sort of said, oh, what am I going to do? Um, and then super happenstance um, sort of happened upon um, something that McKinsey, this was many, many, many years ago, uh, but something that McKinsey was doing in the world of retail. And I said, retail, how interesting. I've always liked to read the business pages, but I've always sort of resisted it. Um, so I ended up doing investment banking for retail and, and consumer products right out of right out of undergrad, um, worked at a sort of consumer-y, media-ish startup, and then I went to business school. And um, then I said, okay, now I'm going to do something in retail. Um, and, and I always, <laughs> I always got advice from my dad that was, don't do retail, don't <laughs> do anything other than retail, try to avoid it. And so I then did something that was, again, retail adjacent. I went, I actually ended up at McKinsey, um, serving retail and consumer clients and did that for a couple of years. And then literally a friend of mine sent me a job posting, um, and said, I think she just sent me an email that said, this is your job. And it was for a director of strategy at, at that point, Saks Fifth Avenue, which was, was a very different um, sort of corporate structure. Um, and I did everything you're not supposed to do. I interviewed. I didn't talk to a soul who worked at the company, but I sort of said, you know what? I've been sort of circling around this industry um, for a while now. Strategy is about the only thing that I'm qualified to do, sort of. Um, and, you know, luxury is probably a good place to start. Um, and, you know, there's a lot to fashion. It's complicated. You know, let, let's give it a try. And that was many years ago. Um, and there, you know, the company has gone through, um, you know, we've, we've sort of gone through many changes. Um, my role has changed any number of times. So it's sort of like I've gotten many new jobs and in some ways worked for many new companies um, within that time, but certainly all within the world of luxury. Absolutely. First, and this is just a personal aside, what liberal arts school in Western Massachusetts? Um, I went to Mount Holyoke. Oh, wow. I went to high school literally a mile away from you. Oh really? Yeah, in South That's Hadley. That's amazing. Sorry. Oh yeah, <laughs> I know it. I know it well. Good old, good old South Hadley, Pioneer Valley. Um. So, uh, what were the various roles that you held at Saxon? How did they sort of go with where, what stage the company was in at that time? 
Yeah. So for the first couple of years, worked in strategy for Saks Fifth Avenue. So that was really leading projects that, you know, sort of cross-functional projects, didn't have a natural owner, all sorts of different things. Um, and then uh, Hudson's Bay Company, so now, you know, nine plus years ago, acquired the company. And my role really shifted, shifted a bit away from Saks Fifth Avenue um, and shifted to some of the other businesses that we owned at the time, um, to Lord & Taylor, uh, spent some time at Hudson's Bay up in Canada, which was super fascinating. And then just spent a lot of time um, more with this sort of corporate entity, just sort of thinking through, we have this new company, it's really evolved a lot. Um, there, you know, the company has grown through acquisition. How do we, we want to govern it? How do we want to organize it? That was really, I really loved a lot of that work. Um, and then I guess it was about um, six years ago or so, um, came back to Saks Fifth Avenue um, and then had sort of a strategy role for, for just a brief period and then um, ended up leading marketing. And that's one of those funny moments in your career where you go, well, this is interesting. I've, I have purchased things. Um, but I have never worked in marketing. Um, but it was uh, what I learned in that time, and this is sort of the, the counsel I always give to people, is brute force and logic gets you most of the way. Um, and that's sort of the way it worked. I remember in those early days, I was so exhausted because it, <laughs> I remember every weekend I would sleep for many, many, many hours because I was just so exhausted because I was just learning all of these new things. And it was very different actually running a function than it was sort of being in sort of staff roles, which is what I had done, you know, really up until that time. Um, and then, you know, then, then this role has evolved quite a bit, um, sort of taken in more elements of uh, the sort of e-commerce, you know, management of of that side of the business over time, we have had different, um, you know, organizational structures as we've had, you know, sort of different business units and different thoughts around how do you organize functions like marketing? What do you, you know, do you put things in a center function? Do you put things all in the business? All of these um, things where, you know, there's lots of different perspectives on them. Um, and, it, you know, any answer is good. It just depends on what your philosophy is. So we've tried a few different things over time. But at this point, um, lead, you know, all of all of marketing um, for the business and, and, you know, certainly have seen seen all sorts of things over time. Six years ago is both not long ago, but also very long ago. And I imagine mm -hmm. the marketing function for a, a huge retailer is very different then as it is now, and especially now that you're in a, a very digitally focused marketing role. So can you just talk about the, the changing philosophies based on like what it was when you entered then and wh what it is that you're focused on now, specifically in, in a, the, the executive marketing function? Yeah, so I, you know, when I look back on on those sort of early days, and it's, a, it's probably a little hard to divorce where we were as a company from where um, where sort of the marketing you know practice you know writ large in the industry has gone, but I do think there's a there's actually a pretty real probably parallel. Um, but when I look back on those early on, you know on those early days, which again you know long in in some ways, short in others. Um, but when I look back, it was sort of all the probably a lot of the things you would think about. It was certainly much less data oriented, um, much less digitally oriented, 
um, a lot of feelings, uh, you know, a lot less science. Um, and then I think just a lot more, probably less orientation candidly around the customer than, you know, than, than probably serves us well. And so it's very much been a journey, which I think in a lot of ways does parallel where the industry has gone and is going, but certainly much more, you know, orientation towards data, um, very, you know, pretty significant transformation towards digital, um, and then much more of a focus on the customer, really, you know, quite, quite central, obviously. Got it, got it, makes sense. I want to go into your role now, what you're seeing, but first, I imagine most of the listeners have at least a vague understanding of of the difference between SACS and SACS Fifth Ave. But just can you give a little bit of rundown of it happened in 2021 and sort of how how the two diverge? Yeah, so about, about two years ago, um, ne- nearly to the day, actually, we spun out our digital business. So, you know, SACS Fifth Avenue, one, one customer-facing brand, and that's still very much the philosophy that we take. And so, you know, I would hope that your, your listeners, um, you know, those who aren't, deep in the business press, you know, probably not even aware that we have done this, which is very much intentional. But the idea was, and I think this is one of those challenges that any big omni-channel retailer, especially that, you know, has a, you know, any sort of significant store fleet faces is, you know, that your future is going to be largely driven by e-commerce, but your today is very much um, dominated by your stores. And some of that is because that's where your revenues are. And some of that is because you have a group of very engaged, um, you know, fantastic leaders who are in all those stores and who are advocating for their businesses, um, which creates, it just creates a pull towards something that is really important today, but that we know is going to, you know, take a different role in the future. And so it was an opportunity for us to say, look, we believe the future of our business is in digital and we believe we are going to focus on it accordingly. We believe the stores are incredibly important. They play a meaningful role in the in the customer experience. They certainly play a huge role in in how consumers understand our brand. But we need to be able to focus our energies, focus our resources on really growing, growing our digital business. I think some of that was this was something that we've been working on candidly pre-pandemic. Um, but the pandemic certainly accelerated some of those, some of those trends. Um, ben, and it has been absolutely fascinating to to get to see it really up close and personal. And I think to have some of those, you know, some of those beliefs that we had actually really turn out to be true. One of the core hypotheses was, look, if we're able to invest more in our business in, especially in the marketing, you know, of it, we're going to be able to grow significantly faster. And I think we really have seen that come to pass. Can you can you give some some numbers to explain that? Because I know that you guys have seen like web traffic grow. What, what How has the last year, year and a half been in terms of the e-commerce business? Yeah, I mean, what one stat I, I point to is, you know, since we spun the business out, we acqu- we've acquired 3 million new customers. That was five times the number of new customers that we had in 2019. Uh, so pre-pandemic, sort of the best, the best probably comp year. Uh, and so it really, which I think said, wow, we just have this, you know, it, it really did to me validate the hypothesis. Um, and it really, I think also speaks to the strength of the brand. Obviously there's, you know, lots of work that we do, you know, every day on, um, you know, on, on our brand image, but, 
Uh, but certainly, I think spoke to spoke to the strength of the brand, and also just spoke to you know just sort of the headroom that we have, and and I think the right the right to to really own the luxury commerce market in the U.S. Got it, got it. So I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like the first year you you begin a spun off brand, a lot of that is just making sure you have you have the wheels are running, you know the the cogs are lubricated, etc. But you've done two years now. What would you say your your emphasis for the last year has been in terms of the, the you know the grand marketing functions. So we've been super focused on on acquiring new customers. Uh, really, you know, in line with that, we are going to invest a lot more in marketing. Um, and look, a lot of the marketing that we do is is driving repeat visits. Um, but we had much more of a focus, you know, really since this since the the spinoff of the business about two years ago much more of a focus on acquiring new customers, as well as really a layering in of, you know, understanding lifetime value of our customers and really being able to, and this was probably a little bit more to your point, sort of a second year activity, um, but really being able to layer that into uh, how we think about customers who we target, how we think about customers who we, you know, want to encourage to come back. We want all customers to come back, but obviously we're going to prioritize our efforts um, and gotten much more sophisticated in how we think about that. And now at this point um, where, you know, the base of our customers has just grown so tremendously, now we're really focused on, you know, continuing to grow customers and, and still, candidly, in, in a meaningful way, um, but more of a focus on on retention and really driving repeat visits. Got it, got it. And what would you, like, what were some of the most important lever- levers you pulled with customer acquisition? And were they different than what you were doing before, or were you just putting more, you know, ignition on the fire? You know, it's a little bit of both, to be to be honest. I think sometimes would love to be able to say, "Oh, it's just these two things." All you gotta do to, <laughs> I've been uh, waiting if, for someone to tell only, me that. Like. <laughs> I know, right? Wouldn't that be? It would be quite something. No, I mean, the, the reality is, look, I think there are, there are certain channels that we that we know, um, you know, that we know tend a little bit more towards new customers. There's some that we know tend a little bit more towards existing customers. But the reality is that there's no, you know, there's no one that's going to do. Um, that's, you know, just like the, the magic silver bullet. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a couple pieces, I think, when you step back of, you know, what our strategy has been over the last couple of years. One, we have, you know, pre-spin out, we we were in most channels. We were not in all channels. Um, so we just, you know, we significantly ramped up our investment in a lot of places. One place, you know, which which I would mention is, you know, as you think about new customers and where where are we going to be able to find them, search is certainly a place where, you know, a little bit lower funnel, uh, but search is certainly a place where, you know, we've been able to ramp that up and I think get a lot more, get a lot, you know, sort of more sophisticated in our strategy. We have a big, um, actually, LTV strategy that we apply to how we think about acquiring those customers. And so that's a place where I think we've been able to, uh, you know, sort of marry the realities of that channel, the um, sort of scope that it has, um, while also, I think, making the economics work. I think the other piece that I would point to, and this is a much, this is a longer, you know, a longer tail kind of thing, but we've uh, you know, we given, you know, sort of given our structure, given, you know, the realities of, you know, the economics, we tended to, you know, we always invested in, you know, top, top of funnel, but we didn't invest probably anywhere near as much as we should have. And so we've been able to invest significantly more 
um, whether that was in video where we had spent very little before. We've invested you know, significantly more there, podcast, advertising, um, all sorts of places, as well as the, the brand activations that have always been really critical to driving earned media. Uh, so we've really been able to focus on driving excitement around the brand. Um, and we've seen, you know, we've seen our organic traffic, you know, really, really continue to be super strong, even in the midst of, you know, sort of overall growth from paid traffic as well. So uh, I feel like it's, you know, a pretty good mix overall. Um, but again, I think it's not a case of any one thing actually being the answer. And it is a ton of tweaking um, every, every day. When you say I've, there are a million things I want to dive into with that, but when you say video, are you focusing mostly on digital video? Are you, we're talking like Instagram video? Are you talking TV? Are you talking all of the above? What are you finding is working? Yeah. I mean, so, so we're in, we're in YouTube or, you know, we're in, and then we're in, um, you know, OTT, CTV, um, all of those. Um, and overall, I think, um, I think what has been, Surprising to us, honestly, is how well it's performed. Uh, it was something we had always been a little bit hesitant about because a and price it's probably it's less expensive now than it was years ago. So, but a you know probably felt expensive. Um, B was something you know we hadn't done, and so that was just hard. Um, but C felt like yes, this really going to work. It's so uh. um, but we've actually been really surprised by how much it has worked, um, and and still think we've got opportunity there. Wow! And so search, I love that you mentioned that. That's something that I feel like every CMO is thinking about, but it's difficult to talk about on a podcast because it gets really in the weeds. So, but could you talk a little about, was there a big strategic shift in how you approach search or was it just that you were putting more investment into thinking about the granularity of your, your SEO and all that? So we, we've certainly invested more. I mean, that's been, you know, it's been a bit of the story over the last, last couple of years and, you know, sort of a, across the board. Um, again, because we felt like we had so much headroom and, you know, I'd say that has, has definitely uh, turned out to be true. Um, you know, within, uh, within our paid search program, well, we were able to just dig into areas that we'd never been able to honestly to fund or to fund in, in ways, um, ways for them to matter. Um, and, and from there we've been able to, I think we've always had a nice infrastructure around, a, you know, a good test and learn program, very analytically oriented, you know, certainly over the last few years. And so we've been able to, you know, sort of take what we've been able to figure out over the last couple of years and and really apply them. I think one of those insights was around generic terms. And you think generic terms and Saks Fifth Avenue and the pricing and like, is that is that going to work? And I'd say the answer is there are moments where it really works. And those are seasonal things or those are sort of moments in life. Wedding shoes is, is a term, for example. That sort of thing works works very nicely. Uh, it doesn't work for everything, but there, but there are moments. And so we've been able to really, I think, use, you know, use the moment, you know, that we had over the last couple of years and really be able to apply that to durable learnings that we then can can use can use to, you know, go for go for further, excuse me. Um and I think the other piece is is around, you know, really layering in an LTV focus to everything that we do. Been thrilled to be able to do that, uh, certainly within our within our page search program. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. I wanted to zoom out a little bit with the entire customer acquisition talk. And would you, you know, you've acquired so many new customers over the last couple of years. Would you say it is? a different demographic or a more zoomed out demographic than what you would think the traditional Saks Fifth Avenue customer once was? So 
pre-pandemic, uh, 2019, 2020, what we started to see is that our customer was starting to get younger. And the you know, the age of our customer is something that honestly we've never really obsessed about. It's we've always said um, it just hasn't candidly been a focus or wasn't a focus, wasn't something we really thought about. But when we started looking at it, we started realizing that naturally our customer was getting younger. We said, wow, this is that says great things about our brand, that says great things about sort of where we can go, um, says great things about the assortment, like all you know, all, all sorts of positive things, especially because you know, since we hadn't really intended to do it. We then, um, and so as we look over the last couple years, that trend has certainly continued. We have seen more male shoppers. That's been a big sort of meta trend over the last few years within the world of luxury and the world of fashion, more interest from men's. Uh, I think the assortments have, have, you know, sort of kept pace or, or accelerated some of that. Um, and then a more diverse customer. It's really important. We think about our core brand values, inclusivity in sort of every element is really important. I think especially within the world of luxury, which can feel intimidating. We want to be super conscious of being of being inclusive and really being for every customer who wants to wants to you know wants to experience what we have, uh, wants to wants to buy what we're selling. We really want to be there for them, and we really want to make them feel like they see themselves in us. Um, and so that's been a big focus, and I think we've really seen that bear fruit. How does that manifest with the inclusivity? Is that just the influencers you work with, the marketing copy? How are you thinking about that so that that actually telegraphs? It, yeah, it is in it's in a lot of things. It's certainly in who we choose to feature in things, whether that's real people, whether that's models, um, making sure that. And I always say like, I, we really want our customers to be able to look at. Look at our advertising, look at our content and see some part of themselves there. Not, you know, you're not going to see a facsimile, um, but you really want to be able to feel like, yeah, I, I get it. That works. Um, and so that's certainly within, um, you know, within within the people who who are working within, certainly within the copy. And it's a really, you know, it's one of it's one of the challenges because it is a tight balance because we also are aspirational. We also are luxury. You also want to feel like you're getting, you know, this amazing exclusive thing, but that you're really welcomed into that club. And so it is all around finding that exact right tone that makes you feel, makes you feel welcome and a part of, a part of the, a part of the community um, while still maintaining that positioning. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. I wanted to ask, about the overall economic landscape, because we're like for multiple reasons. But one, Saks was spun out in 2021, right after this huge e-commerce shift where everybody was shopping online. And now that has flattened out a, a great deal. And so has that been witnessed in in what you're seeing from Saks? Has that not? How are you thinking about the overall reshaking of, you know, in-store, online, et cetera? So our business is is still very strong. We feel we still feel really nice about where we've been or where we've been certainly but but where we're going. Um and we feel a lot of the you know sort of investment that we've made over the last couple years, you know, acquiring those those 3 million new customers over the last, you know, over the last 2 years, we do think that bears fruit over over a number of years. The the reality is that 
you know, and then this is, I think, very structural to luxury, but consumers aren't shopping with us, with us every day. But having that relationship, starting that relationship um, is something that, in, and then being able to, you know, to communicate with customers, to be able to bring them back in, um, that bears fruit, whether that's, you know, immediately or, or sort of over years. Um, it is certainly a, you know, it's a weird environment. And I think, um, and I think, you know, in general, our customers are very, very little of what we sell is something that you truly, truly, truly need, um, depending on who you are. Um, and so in general, our customers are going to be more apt to, you know, spend more frequently or, you know, spend more when they feel really confident. And so having a lot of dynamism, um, <laughs> or in the, in the most euphemistic way, um, is is not super helpful. So certainly stability, whether that's, you know, whether that's, you know, fantastic or that's a little bit a little bit more negative, just sort of knowing what's going to come a little bit more is is helpful. So we, we would root for some stability one way or the other. Um, but the reality is, you know, we have a big business and we have a great strategy. Um, and I do think the last couple of years and the growth that we've had really does position us to be able to, uh, you know, to continue to be successful. Do you, are you seeing it play out? It's, it's become sort of a meaningless, like adage that, that people say that luxury is recession proof. And like, we're, it's not necessarily that we're, you know, we'll be debating for years whether or not we're in a recession, but we're definitely in an economically turbulent time. And so how are you thinking about that as an executive at a luxury company? Yes, turbulent. That's that's a that's a I'd say a more straightforward way to describe it. Um, it is. I, I don't think luxury is recession proof, but luxury is very durable. It really <laughs> is, and, and we've seen it. We have seen it, you know, through through many 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 cycles, um, and, and some of that I think is that the industry has done a nice job of sort of positioning itself as an investment. Um, less spend, more investment, um, which makes you think about it differently. I also think that the products are fantastic. They are high quality. They are well-made. They are beautiful. And so when you think about the places where you're going to scrimp and save and the things, places where you're going to invest because they make you feel that much better, I, I think even in more challenging times, they can be places where customers will make trade-offs to say, you know what, it's, you know, think times are tough, but I don't want to give up on whether it's my skincare regimen or this amazing dress or the sweater that I'm going to wear all the time um, because it's, it, it ends up being actually worth it, even if the, you know, the sort of out the door cost is, is maybe a little bit higher. Got it. Got it. Makes sense. I wanted to switch gears a little bit, and you sort of touched on this a bit, but I want to go deeper into retention, which I imagine is something that you think about a lot. I feel like every marketing person I talk with now is talks about how retention is the new CAC or whatever. Anyway, it seems like CAC is the, still the CAC for you. Um, <laughs> CAC, yeah. Well, it's yeah, it's complicated. Yeah. But, yeah. but so, how are you thinking about retention specifically as you've had this big growth to three million customers? What levers are you pulling? I know that you guys are very data oriented. You guys just had a survey that came out looking at overall trends. How does this all fit into overall the the overall retention play at Saks? So we think of 
in general, our, you know, our marketing strategy, but especially, you know, by, by its nature, we think about personalization and retention as really living very, very close to each other. Uh, we have a, we have a pretty sophisticated personalization strategy. It's centered around what we call our customer DNA, which is about 250, um, inputs. Those are across both the, the e-commerce business, the stores business, those are um, those are observed, those are predicted. Um, and those are, you know, everything from what you've shopped, what you've looked at, you know, how you came into us, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we use those, you know, within all of our owned channels to really to tailor our messaging. It plays a huge role in, um, you know, in obviously in, in getting you to come back. Um, and it also layers in back to our to our LTV strategy. So you sort of think about those two things playing together. I want to obviously we want to retain, you know, we want to retain all customers. We're going to be prioritizing and obviously we want to we want to do more to, you know, more aggressively retain and at a higher rate and a higher frequency our our higher LTV customers. Um, so I think about we think we think about those two things, you know, really sort of in tandem, but personalization really being the central way that the central way that we do it. And then there's a lot of testing that we're doing um, to understand, um, you know, sort of more personalized, more personalized ways to retain customers. We have uh, a digital stylist program um, where we have, you know, it's it's real live stylists um, who, you know, any of our customers can reach out to get advice, you know, get help. Um, get their, you know, thoughts on things to buy. I'm going to XYZ. I, I have to go back to the office and I really need some new clothes. Can you help me? Um, so there's a, I think there's a ton of upside there um, and a lot of other things that we've been working through. Do people, I love those digital programs that were, became huge during the pandemic uh, for a variety of reasons. Are people still using those types of digital services that connect someone virtually with another expert in the field? They, they certainly are. And there's a lot more that I think we build. I think you know, I think there's there's an example for us, certainly, of digital stylists. We also have uh, we call Saks Live, which is our live commerce um, program, something that, to your point, we started we started in the pandemic. We have a, a real heritage in events. We, um, you know, we would typically run, call it 4,000 events in our stores every year. Wow. Remarkable number. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, bracing to imagine. Um, and obviously, pandemic happened. We stopped doing those immediately. And so we very quickly figured out, okay, well, we're going to start doing virtual events. Um, and we're going to, you know, and that was, I think we'd started with Zoom, the whole thing. Um, I can't believe it's been three years. Um, and from there, we really said, you know what, there's an opportunity here, um, which is bigger. It started as sort of virtual events and has become much more, much more programmatic. Um, and we now think of it as live commerce the but i think the the point with all of this is there was you know sort of this this acceleration this you know sort of bump in a lot of these virtual or you know sort of digital services there then comes and so you know sort of goes up it'll sort of come down and we're sort of now at the place where it's normalizing but the reality is that because you know, this huge swath of consumers, they were exposed to these services in a way that would have taken a decade. We're going to be able to accelerate the progress on those much more quickly than we would have otherwise, otherwise, excuse me. So 
we're really excited about live commerce and where we can go. Uh, I think that's obviously going to take a little while here. In general, we find it's a really engaged sex customer who's engaging with that content. It's super one-on-one. It's super personalized. There's a lot more that we can that we can do and build. And we find, you know, in general, the AOV of a customer who's engaging with Sex Live um, is going to go up after they do so. Not necessarily with the the merchandise that they've seen, but just in general, just driving loyalty overall. Um, so it's just one of like many many tactics that we're, I want, we're working through. I want to make sure. So with Sex Live. Is that on the site? How how does that manifest? It sure is. It absolutely is on the site. And so you can you can get to it and you know right from the home page and, and you'll see there's uh, you know, so there's multiple live events every week, and then there's recorded content um, that's, you know, a host of different, no pun intended, uh, but a host a host of different um, uh, different topics. And do you find do people tune in? because they know it's happening like what is what is the the engaged customer do you send them an email and saying this is happening now this is your favorite host or this is your favorite style how how do you i've heard so many different things about live programs you know should you use an app like like uh talk shop live or you know like i feel like there's so many different mm-hmm. things that are going yeah. on what have you found has worked in terms of what is actually resonating so in general what resonates at least in terms of content is um an expert. So having a, and, and I think this is a theme beyond the world of live commerce um, and certainly for our business, but having, having an expert there and it, and it can be, you know, for example, we do, um, we do occasional programs with our buyers, our evening buyer, for example, and hearing him talk about the, you know, what he's super excited about, what he's bought, how he's thinking about, you know, whatever the trends are, those perform incredibly well because it feels really real. It's access that is hard to get otherwise, and it just feels straight from the source. And so I think, as I said, I think that's something that, you know, that's certainly really true in live commerce. I think that's true in all content, though. Um, I think there's more and more demand for, you know, that that sort of reality, that authenticity, uh, you know, sort of regardless where where it's coming from necessarily. Just about running out of time, but I always try to ask this. So we have, you have a bunch of things you're working on. You're working on growth. You're working on retention. What are sort of the three big pillars that you're focusing on for the year to come uh, for SACS? One is retention, uh, very much straight, straightforward, um, you know, which is really around, you know, it's retaining more customers and, and it's getting them to shop with us more frequently, which is all around figuring out, you know, through our personalization efforts, how do we serve them better? Um, but that's super core. And then the second thing is um, really around um, making our brand as super relevant as it can be. We have had incredible success. We are a brand that is iconic, you know, that is inspiring. Um, but we never, never, never want to rest on our laurels. Um, and so we think we have opportunities to get even crisper in our messaging, you know, even more breakthrough. Um, and so that's, uh, that's the, the other big focus. Got it. Well, Emily, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week. Bye.